Welcome to How Church Works. This endeavor is focused primarily on sharing conversation and discovering its purpose and function. While in each episode there will be a starting topic, our podcast will be off the reins from typical scripted content, warranting more intimate and creative discussion. Our desire is to find truth in love, and on our end, behind the mic, we believe that Yeshua, or Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah, and as a person, is the truth. As our own church, we aim to obey the scriptures, and we are given a duty to equip and build up followers of the way. We hope this will be an accessible platform for such a duty through our conversations. As we continue, you'll be able to perceive more into our lives as disciples of Christ, but we invite you in, as a listener, to meditate on these conversations and, hopefully, can continue them with others in your lives. Again, welcome. So I wanted to talk about um, John three fourteen through 17, specifically because I had a dream about um, a relative of mine um, showing me uh, a essentially an antique that had John three fourteen through seventeen, and she was showing me in a way to 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 uh, show me like, oh, I understand like who the Messiah is now, or I understand more of this popular passage because in the middle of that, you have John three sixteen for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, mm-hmm. um, which I mean is. I would probably say one of the more, if not most popular verse that's used in, in culture and in the world today, um, to showcase someone's love for Yeshua or, or yes. whatever. But, but it, I think, you know, what we've, what we've talked about before, it's, it's just good. It's good for equipping for the saints. It's good for anybody that's just listening, like a layman that's listening, that hears John three sixteen, and needs the context to understand about why it starts with for God so loved the world. It's like it's continuing a thought, the beginning of that. Um, And I I just think it's important to dive in there. Um, We've talked about things like, you know, just kind of covering some bases like the Asham and what what it correlates to and and what Jesus is fully talking about in this just for um, grasping a deeper understanding of where did you like, what is John 316 saying, you know? Yes. Within the scope of verses 14 through 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I, uh, I think this passage is filled. It's, it's uh, I don't even know where this idiom comes from. It just like jumped in my mind. It's chock full. I don't even know what that uh-huh. means. Chock um, full. It's chock, chock full. full of chock. <laughs> I don't know. what I think it's C-H-O-C-K, but that's even more confusing because I know what chalk is i don't know what chalk i just think is. it's count chocula okay what so um it is it's chock full of uh i'm gonna do it I'm yeah gonna say it. <laughs> that this this passage is chock full of meaning um uh, full of components elements you uh, you could say uh that are pregnant with deep reads of ancient texts uh, interpretations and I think it's a classic example of uh, Yeshua's commitment to his uh, calling as Mashiach as the Messiah he has a calling he has a vocation and he really is just such a faithful example of a man who sticks to his calling um, and so Mashiach is called to be Mashiach Yeshua is called to function as the Mashiach and um, this role Part of its duty is to speak parabolically, to speak in parables, um, and uh, and fulfillment of uh, this Isianic kind of role, which is itself a, 
you know, a Joshua calling uh, uh-huh. that, that's kind of prophesied over a coming figure right before Moshe dies in, in Deuteronomy uh, 32. There's going to be this role that uh, of a, a prophet that rises up and speaks the words of God in riddles and opaquely and confusingly. Moses prophesies about him speaking parabolically? Absolutely. He prophesies mm-hmm. about, I mean, Moses himself speaks parabolically to them. That's what Deuteronomy 32 is. It's a giant song parable. It's cryptic. It's a riddlesome. Mm-hmm. And on purpose, because Moshe is like, he's not going to enter the land. Okay. Aaron's already dead. Um, his brother, Aaron. Uh, and Yehoshua, Joshua's with him, you know, right up until the very end. And you can see them in 29, Deuteronomy 29, that they're the second rehearsal, so to speak, of the Torah which is why in Greek they call it Deuteronomy from Deuteros, Namos, mm-hmm. second law or second recitation of the law mm-hmm. um, prior. Uh, so it's that generation that survives in the wilderness. Um, all, mom, you know, all moms and dads are dead from that generation, except Joshua and Caleb, are ready to now cross the Jordan and go into the land. Moshe is not going to go with them because he sinned. Uh, and they renew the covenant in 29 and... And, uh, you know, they're, they're, it seems like there's great, very hopeful. And it's almost like Yahweh, like, <laughs> kind of like, <clears throat> it's a, if you read the text, it's kind of abrupt and it's sad for Moshe, but he kind of like, you know, shits on that hope because he's like, yeah, so basically Moshe, here's what's going to happen. They're going to violate everything you've said. They're not going to keep this covenant. They're going to break it. And uh, in preparation for that, here's kind of this insurance policy. Teach them this song, you and Joshua teach them this song and make them memorize it and it will be a witness against them Mm. it's like uh okay the song itself is a prophetic word really it's the prophetic word for the the history of israel it's the prophetic word from essentially from their beginning to their end uh and um it's put in the mouth of moshe the chief prophet and Yehoshua, Joshua, who's going to be the one who takes up that role. Um, and the two of them sing the song and the people have to memorize it. Its meaning isn't very clear. There's a lot of cryptic components in it. And uh, it kind of sets the stage for the transferal from Moshe to Yehoshua to Joshua. Um, and this role is so important you know and even like it's 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 weird man there's oh gosh there's so many there's so many rabbit holes um there's so many rabbit holes uh Mm -hmm. that you could go down with this and so this song is kind of sung by and prophesied and is handed off to joshua ben nun yehoshua whose name was hoshea his name was hoshea which just means salvation but Moshe receives him as a minister, as a ministering servant. Says, no, man, your name's not going to be Hoshea anymore. Your name's Yahoshua. Yahoshua. Yahweh is salvation. Mm-hmm. So he, he names him. That name takes on various, you know, uh, pieces of significance in Israel's history. You fast forward. The second Moshe, in some senses, is Elijah, Eliyahu, this great prophet who also goes to Mount Horeb and speaks with Yah face to face and is told who which king to anoint and who to, right. to put his hands on to take his place. Uh, three people he's to anoint, whatever. And uh, and who's his successor? Who is Eli- Elijah's successor? We know that 
Moshe's successor is Yehoshua Joshua, whose name means Yahweh's salvation. Eliyah, my God is Yahweh, okay, um, is, uh, his successor is Elisha, which isn't from the phrase Eli, as though it sounds like that, um, but that would just be a homophone. In Hebrew, it means El is salvation. God is salvation. Same meaning as Joshua. Mm -hmm. And Elisha is going to get a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He'll be more powerful, do greater works, more miracles. All that's mm -hmm. true. You fast forward. And a really, a really, though I would say that the most, uh, you know, the most powerful prophet in the major prophets, the one, the one of the most powerful prophets post Moshe is Isaiah, whose name is Yeshaya, which is just a transfer, a, a, a flop, a, a salvation from God. It's Yahweh is salvation, but it's it's the reversal salvation uh, Yeshaya, yeah, salvation is Yahweh, or, or, or Yahweh saves the same concept, and so he like steps into this Joshua role. Mm -hmm. And Yah says, who will go for us? Who will I send? And he's anticipating a prophet who's going to step up and, and play this role. And it is Isaiah. Yeshayah. He, step, he steps up in mm -hmm. Isaiah 6. And that's where we get this command. Uh, basically, Yah is in the divine council. First, Yeshayah is in the temple the, in the year that Uzziah died. This is when Yeshayah, Isaiah's ministry begins. Uzziah is this king who dies of leprosy, who was a good Davidic descendant. And he dies of leprosy because of covetousness and power. Yahweh strikes him with leprosy. Um, and in the year that Uzziah dies, Isaiah is standing in the temple and he sees Yah. He sees Yahweh. His, his, the, the hem of his garment floods the temple. He sees him enthroned. He sees tons of seraphim, which are serpents. Okay, flaming serpent um, malachim, angels. All right, uh, they have six wings. Uh, and... Which chapter is this? In this is in Isaiah 6. Okay. And he just sees this incredible panoramic vision. And he says, uh, Yah, he, he's witnessing Yah speaking. And, and these creatures are crying out, holy, holy, holy is Yah. And based on the Hebrew, either the creatures crying is making the temple shake and quake and quiver. Or Yah speaks and the temple shakes and quakes and quivers. It's probably Yah speaking. Mm -hmm. Which again, these are components that are the same. Moshe is the one who takes Joshua at his hip up the mountain. It right. would seem that Moshe, when he goes onto the mountain into the cloud, that he takes Yehoshua with him. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a possible read. He does every time he goes into the tent. Mm -hmm. The mountain quakes when Yah speaks. This kind of thing. Eliyahu doesn't take Elisha, but again, the mountain quakes when he speaks. And here's Yeshaya. This temple is quaking. The temple is a mountain. Right? It's a it's a man. One way to see the temple is it's a man-made mountain. Mm -hmm. um, oh, okay. And and so here's Yah, and Yahweh is speaking, and he asks the question, uh, apparently addressing the seraphim. But by extension, if the seraphim are there, then you can anticipate that there are other beings within his cohort in his court, but you can't see them because he's exalted. Really, the thing that Yeshua sees, he's so small, as he sees just the hem of his garment, the edge. Of Yah's garment or skirt, okay, these guys wore right. priestly garments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the hem of his garment flooding and filling the temple. Yeshua does a weird thing. Isaiah does a weird thing where he kind of Isaiah depicts Yahweh as huge in multiple parts of his prophecy, which is a gigantic prophecy. Uh, so you have this tiny Isaiah seeing this huge God that the, the whole temple is quaking when he speaks, you know, and he hears this voice. Who will go for us? Who will go for us? Um, and it's a it's a it's this question that echoes throughout uh, 
It's a question that echoes throughout all of Yahweh's dealings with Israel. Who will go for us? I mean, Moshe was the one who's supposed to answer the call. Right. He kind of doesn't want to. And so Aaron is kind of roped in to right. do that with him. Right. Yehoshua is going to take over that role. Um, and if you, uh, let's take a peek here. I actually would like to just read it because it's a very powerful scene, you know? Yeah. And it's it would be really cool to uh, kind of hear it, hear the... the uh, um, so so in in correlating this to the to the verses it's like Moshe spoke parabolically to Israel mm-hmm. and uh uh spoke parabolically prophesying about mm-hmm. the Messiah yes. Isaiah as well when he essentially sees not just the Messiah the history of Yahweh and Israel this mm-hmm. prophetic word song of the entire history of Yahweh in Israel, and yes, the the uh, crescendo of that history is this appearance of a figure, yes, a Messiah, right? But it's gonna get weird, and the reason I know I'm like I'm being very circuitous and going around, and you're doing a good job, like bringing no, it that's back. A... That, you're bringing it back to people. It's like, oh God, we're really deep here. We're in Isaiah. I thought we were in John three. <laughs> I just want to hear John three sixteen again. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Look, man, you know I know you want your main course, but. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to be like Bradley Cooper in that restaurant scene. I'm going to take your table up and throw you out if you don't. (laughs) That's fine. I'm here to stay, man. Uh, um, And and by the way, it's going to get eerie. The correlations are going to get really weird. Um, So we have this. this, uh, It's incredible because atonement is at the heart of this. Okay, atonement. I've not touched it, but it's there. It's the word atonement occurs in Deuteronomy 32. Mm Mm-hmm. It will be atoned for. The people will be atoned for. Uh, Israel will make, atonement will be made for Israel. And it will affect the nations. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's correlated, it's closely on the heels of Yahweh will come and fight against the gods and the goyim and the Gentiles. He'll use the goyim, the Gentiles, goyim. He'll use the Gentiles. He'll fight against the Gentiles, gods, and he'll use the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And atonement will be made. Mm-hmm. That's already in Deuteronomy 32, this very pregnant song. We move forward to Elijah, uh, Elisha, and we move forward now to Yeshia, Isaiah, this young priest, the son of Amotz. He's in the, he's a priest. He's in the temple, you know, and and he's a prophet. Most prophets were priests. I mean, Moshe and Aaron, two chief prophets, are in the line of Levi. Uh, Eliyahu is a Tishbite, but he has a priestly function as a shofet and a judge, and it's a weird, circuitous story how he gets there. The Jews actually think uh, they just cast Eliyahu as a priest because it creates too many problems if he's not, because mm-hmm. he sacrifices <laughs> and does things. Yeah. And uh, um, and then we get to Isaiah, and he's a priest, prophet, and there he is in this temple, and he's seeing this giant god, and he's terrified. He's terrified, you know? Um, and when he sees Yah and everything's shaking... He says, woe to me, I'm destroyed. You know? Isaiah says, woe to me, I'm destroyed. Like, I'm ruined. I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Okay? And I've seen. And I, I have seen my eyes have seen Yahweh of armies Yahweh of armies and he's terrified okay um, and 
There's flaming serpent, one of the flaming serpent serpents. Uh, he flies over to Yeshia. This is it, still Isaiah 6. This is still Isaiah 6. And he takes this um, coal from the altar. So it's holy. The coal is holy. It's the fire from the altar. He takes fire from the altar and he per- presses it onto Yeshia's lips. And he cleanses his mouth. Literally in Hebrew. He takes it with the tongue. He takes it from that altar. And he touched it on my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched. This serpent says it. Either the serpent or Yah, we don't know. The serpent, this, ser- this flaming seraphim. Either it speaks or Yah does. Behold, the sins, uh, or, or this has touched your lips. And vesar uh, avonecha, your iniquity is removed and turned aside. Vechatacha, and your sin, tehubar, is atoned for. Now this is bizarre because uh, Uzziah dies from leprosy. Leprosy is uh, about speech that infects, that comes from coveting. It's a contagion that you can infect people with your mouth and with your spittle and your speech. Yeah. This touches the idea of serpents because there are certain adders and asps in the wilderness that they can spit poison. <laughs> they don't mm-hmm. need to clamp down. And so that becomes this powerful metaphor for lies and covetous deceit that infects you and poisons you. This is leprosy. Mm-hmm. The king dies of leprosy. I dwell among a people of unclean lips as a reference. When you're a leper, you cover your mouth and you say, you cover your lips. And you say, I, you, you say, unclean, unclean. And he calls out and he's basically saying, I'm covetous, I'm ruined, I can't be near you. And he cleanses his mouth so he can proclaim. So that the words that come out don't infect, but they're purified. He chooses mm-hmm. him as a prophet and the prophetic word is pure in his mouth. And he atones for him. Mm-hmm. Okay, he, he 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 cleanses. So we move we move forward, and then Yah speaks after this atonement takes place, and then he hears a voice. He hears the voice of the Lord Adonai, Kol Adonai, voice of the Master Omer, saying, "Et mi eshlach, who will I send? Umi yelechlanu, and who will go for us?" And Yeshua answers Isaiah, little Isaiah, hearing this booming voice and this horrifying scene. He says, Hineni, Shalacheni, over here, send me. <laughs> so he responds and says, Here am I, send me. Send me. Okay, Shalach is where we get the word Shliach, which is apostle. And he's sent by God. And, dude, the word he's got to speak, it's like, Okay, what do I say? And he tells him words that are related to Deuteronomy 32. Speak to them in riddles. He says, uh, the word that he's supposed to speak is, he replies to him, but Yomer Lech, go, Veyamata, and you speak Laam, and you speak to the people, Haze, this, okay? Shimo, Shamoa, Veal Tavino. Go on hearing with your hearing, okay? Be ever hearing, hearing with your hearing, but don't understand, okay? And seeing, ever seeing, seeing with your seeing, and do not know intimately. See and not recognize or know. Hear and don't understand. This is a parabolic ministry. 
The words he puts in Isaiah's mouth are riddles on purpose. Mm. The, the question arises is, if you all go all the way back to the thing with Moshe, well, why would God speak a riddle or a parable or, or, or confusion in the first place? Because he says, okay, I'm going to honor this people. I gave them the Torah through my servant Moshe, and it was clear, crystal clear, transparent. They don't like the clear words. They like to take things that are clear and complicate them with their traditions and their coveting and their selfish interpretation. They like it opaque. They like to take the clear things I give them and make my clear words opaque. Here's what I'm going to do. You want opaque words? I'll give you opaque words. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the Torah. It's just honoring their judgment. Yeah. yeah. It's honoring the, how This is what you like? You don't like it when my servant comes and gives you clear words? You want to kill him? You want to replace Moshe? You want to replace Aaron? You want to spit on them? You want to threaten them? You want to rebel? Okay. I'll send you a servant that speaks the words you like to hear. Now, these words, just like always, you live on every word that comes from my mouth. I gave you words that were clear, and they are life and death for you, but you hated that. I'm going to speak, and my words are still life and death for you, but I'll give it to you the way you want. They'll be opaque. That's horrifying. And he gives Isaiah this ministry. And if you read Isaiah, this sweeping, grand work of a prophet. It's 66 chapters. It's enormous. It's dense. It's deep. The Hebrew is poetical. It's beautiful. I mean, this is, there's no gospel without Isaiah. Indeed, moving forward with Yeshua, there's no messianic ministry without Isaiah. None. Mm -hmm. None. Mm -hmm. It is literally like it lays out that song that this, this role of someone who speaks in riddles and, 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 and pantomime prophecy and moves with their hands and their bodies that have deep significance that you don't know if you don't have the cipher. And, and I mean, Yeshia, he does pantomime prophecy, meaning he prophesies with his members. Prophecy is not just a, uh, uh, it's, a it's, an, it's an act in the scene realm, whether you use your members of your mouth to speak words and then it needs to be interpreted, or you use your hands and gestures and you use the realm of stuff and, and objects to pantomime certain things. Right. One of the biggest things Isaiah prophesies is the exile. Galut, which comes from gala, which means to make naked. Mm -hmm. The reason why is because, Really shrewd kings and cruel kings like the Assyrian king, when they if they don't murder everyone, the people who aren't killed, they take you captive. And uh, how do you know who's captive? Well, easy. Our captives are naked. We humiliate them. We strip them naked. I am your God. I am your ruler. You're now born again. I take you as a captive to a new land. You don't run away because you're naked. You're ashamed because you're, you're enslaved and you're naked and I take you to this new land. And then I clothe you. I give you a new identity. Okay, this, is, <laughs> this is a dark, that's what, that's what Egypt did to their slaves and their, their subjects, their low, the lowest subjects. That's what Assyria did. This is what cruel empire does. It strips you naked and it does this. Isaiah was so committed as a prophet. For three years, he walked around Jerusalem but bald ass naked. Now, if you imagine, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> no, like this is a prophet. I mean, imagine bumping into him at the marketplace, you know, <laughs> like here he is. He's living the message of nakedness. It's coming, guys. It's coming. And, and he's, he, he has this grand sweeping work, speaking in riddles. And uh, my dude, like, we move forward to Yeshua, and when and you get down, you go to Matthew 13. Everybody, you know, it's where he really like he gets in the thick of um, speaking in parables, and you know, and his his uh, Talmudim, his disciples, they say, 
why are you speaking parables so much? Why, like, why, you know, why? why? And, uh, he, and he's like, the reason I speak in parables is, and he says two things in Matthew 13. He quotes two scriptures. One, he just quotes Isaiah 6. Literally just fucking quotes it. So that those who have ears won't hear. Those who have eyes won't see. And, and they won't know to call on me lest uh, uh, they'll, they'll, be du they'll be duped and they won't call on me to heal them. The reason the verb, the lemma, heal is used is because of leprosy, because of covetousness. They're infected. Sin yeah. is an infection inside. It's a sickness. Okay? It t it's taken down every good Davidic ruler. Mm -hmm. the, the Davidic hope is tainted and ruined by... This infection of covetousness. Yeah. And uh, and so he just says it. Yeshua says that. And then the other thing he quotes, Psalm 78, verse 1, which when what we did with Psalm 22, go check out that podcast episode. Mm -hmm. That means read Psalm 78, which is like, well, shit, dude, why are you making me do that? It's like 52 verses or something. It's an enormous psalm. Do you know what it is? Just the history of Israel. That's it. The, take this imagine this imagine the recapitulation and empowerment like a, a thing going around a centrifuge or, and, and it's getting more and more momentum and inertia you know if you ever watch the flash like sometimes he goes in this training course and he just like, yeah. builds up that's what's happening these roles throughout Israel's histories this back and forth in conversation with Yah it gets more and more intense and what ends up happening is it's that question that he asked Yeshia who will go for me I mean Yeshia says I'm here, send me. Later on in 59, Isaiah is going to be dead. His disciples will have continued and bound up his teaching. Okay, which is why Isaiah is a large composite work. Isaiah literally prophesies that. He is commanded by Yah to do this in uh, chapter 8. So to explain why does he speak in parables and what does he do with his disciples? It literally just comes from Isaiah. Isaiah, 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 chapter 8. Right. Literally, Isaiah chapter... Um, Eight. Isaiah chapter eight um, says, uh, "Yes, yes." For Yahweh said to me, to Isaiah, I'm in eight eleven. While his hand weighed heavily on me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, "You must not call conspiracy everything that this people calls conspiracy." Isaiah, you must not share its fear. You must not be in dread. You shall regard Yahweh of hosts as holy, and He is your fear. He is your dread. And he will become, is it Yahweh or is it Isaiah? And he will become like a sanctuary and a stumbling stone and like a stumbling rock for the two houses of Israel, like a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble among them and they shall fall and they shall be broken down and they shall be ensnared and they shall be caught. And then what does he have to do? Watch this. Yeshayah has a command from Yah. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching, the instruction, among my disciples. It means to hide. This verb for seal and bind up is to hide it. You hide it in plain sight with parables, but you also hide testimony. Do we have an example of Yeshua of Nazareth following this MO? Does he bind up testimony among certain disciples? I believe so, yeah. Consistently. Even when he heals people, he tries to avoid crowds. Right. He tells people to not say anything. Bingo. Yeah. In in his most intense his most intense signs, which are signs that are correlated to his identity as the local Yahweh, right? Like healing people of blindness, right? Raising a dead girl, the transfiguration. Either the one who receives it is the only witness, or 
he takes with him two or three, typically the three. In the synoptics, it's going to be the three. Kepha, Peter, okay. Yochanan uh, and Yaakov. It's going to be Peter, James, and John. They witness the little girl being raised. He binds it up. He doesn't take the other, the other ones. He goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. He binds it up. Don't tell anyone. Okay? Right. And, uh, and so he's following this MO, and he binds up and seals this teaching among his Talmudim, his disciples. Isaiah does this? That's why Isaiah is such a sweeping work. A priest is already in the habit of taking the Torah and copying it and making sure it's understood and adding traditions around it, not adding in the sense of let me make up a tradition, but keeping the testimony alive, scribally and in right. the local memory. Right. And so they will have, they'll be disciples of disciples, and they will have disciples to continue with that work. And that's what Isaiah does. That's what Yeshua does. I mean, Yeshua is following a plan, a blueprint that is set by Isaiah. But then the question goes, where did Isaiah get it? He got it from Deuteronomy 32. If you go back to Moses' song, everything, oh, there's so many words in Moses' song that would be a hapax legomena. What is a hapax legomena? A hapax legomena is a word or a lemma that occurs in the original language of a translated text that only occurs once in, in the work. Okay. So, for example, the word av occurs hundreds of times. It's father. Right. But there would be there are so many words in Deuteronomy 32 in this poetical Hebrew song that would be a hapax legomena if it weren't for Isaiah. But Isaiah isn't he. Well, I guess we can't know, but like, uh, or we don't know right now. But it, he's not doing it just straight up from memory about Moshe writing. Is that just Yahweh just helping, like, giving him the knowledge, and that he Yahweh is just fulfilling Yahweh? Yeah. Let me let me touch that because. The role, Yahweh is keeping his word. Yahweh puts these words in Isaiah's mouth. He goes and he receives from Yahweh directly. Mm -hmm. But we know from what he's received, that's what I'm saying. If you read the content of Deuteronomy 32, when Hapax when Legomen has come up, it typically is a high form of the language, archaic forms of the language, meaning not long, no longer in use, and poetical often. Okay, And so here's all these weird one-off words, but they're not weird one-off words in the Old Testament because Isaiah takes right. those words. They, would have been, have they only been. occur right. in Deuteronomy 32 and in Isaiah, and they get repeated and built on and layered in Isaiah. He takes Deuteronomy 32, and he's like, I'll show you a song. And he gives us this sweeping 66-chapter work. Mm -hmm. okay? oh, God, yeah, and he yeah. layers it. Okay. But here's what's crazier. This prophetic word, which essentially is this song, which is essentially Israel's history, which speaks about Yahweh coming and making atonement, showing up in a grand local way and raising up a Messiah, this leader figure, that is expanded and expounded in Isaiah. And it's like this prophetic word, dude, became a human. This prophetic word, which was the entire history of, oh, right. okay. of Israel, took on flesh a, and became... Right. Yeah. You're talking it, about a prophet of prophets. Exactly. Like, he is the full culmination of like prophecy whatever you know the full culmination of prophecy it would be almost like imagine the star you know the lebron james doing a basketball camp mm -hmm. it's like you go dunk the ball okay you died you're done you know you, you, right. out of, you got in right. line right. you know you go dunk the ball moshe okay you're out of here yehoshua joshua you go dunk the ball okay you're out of here elijah you go dunk the ball okay you're out of here Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it'd be like, okay, right. we're doing this, we're doing this. And it'd be like, LeBron's finally like, no, no, no. You guys aren't really getting, you're not really getting it. I'm going to show you. I'm going to dunk the ball. That is essentially okay. this idea. Another way to say that is just like, what's the most secure way for 
the word, the prophetic word, to be safe in the mouth of a prophet. We already see that's a risk in Isaiah 6. I'm a man of unclean lips. My coveting might change the words. I'm a, can I really be trusted as a messenger for God in the scene realm? Well, the safest way for the prophetic word to be safeguarded as if the prophetic word were to become the prophet. Right, the coal, the coal becomes a prophet, the, essentially. The, the, exactly. no, well, like not the coal. Thing. No, not the coal. No, not the coal. The word that was put in his ear becomes the prophet. Jeez. Yeah, so <laughs> that would be the, 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 that'd be the clearest way to safeguard it, right? And I can't fit all this on a bumper sticker. No, <laughs> you can't. John 3.16. Uh, so it's like, well, dude, you haven't touched John 3.16 yet. I'm getting there. So the, uh, the, the, now that we have this kind of background, the background that we have is this, and I could give you more, but I won't on this. I'll give you more in other areas. Uh, what we have here now, so imagine a giant puzzle piece or a piece of our mosaic set now. And what we have now is the general shape of what, I, what we can dig into. And we'll still have to jump back and forth between the Torah to understand. But what I've now demonstrated to you is now we go back to these verses, our verses in John, right? Mm -hmm. And here's a problem. Okay, I'm going to go to the favorite verse and I'm not going to read it. I'm going to read the... I'm sorry. It's no, so the, not sexy to read no. the context. But uh, well, they, well, they also just like split it up arbitrarily. <laughs> they and, do. Yeah, they have headings. Oh, just ignore everything that came before. Uh, God love the yeah, yeah, He okay. stopped right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I will say this. I, I will say this. Um, you're going to find that I have a, 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 an opinion. I don't think it's a minority opinion. Among, there is a general scholarly consensus about it. It is probably a minority opinion among popular readership. Okay, but it's not a, there's a scholarly consensus on it, that verse six, verses 16 um, through 21 is John, the author, injecting his synopsis or take. Mm -hmm. He does this at multiple points in the gospel. I, I, he does it actually at multiple points um, in, this, in this chapter. Uh, for example, verses 31 to 36 it's John the Apostle speaking, not John the Baptist. The same chapter. Okay? It's like, well, dude, no, dude, you're wrong. Look at the quotation marks. There are no quotation they marks in Greek. Um, <laughs> yeah. So how do we know who's speaking when if we don't have quotation marks? He said, or this line is there. We only know their context. So here's what's interesting is John, who is the one who was this beloved disciple of Yeshua. And by the way, why would John feel it's so essential to cut in at this key point in his gospel telling for both Yeshua and both John the Baptist? Let me put forward an idea. John won't name himself in his gospel, huh? He doesn't mm. like to, he doesn't do it. That's so incredible. To me, that's incredible. Let's let's see why. Both of them were his rabbis. Right. Two disciples in the beginning of this work were with John the Baptist, Andrew, and the other unnamed one. Right. Is he binding it up in a way? Who? John. By no. Himself. No, I think it's the opposite. Because No, I think it's the opposite. Because what's going to end up happening is this, there's going to, we know this, that's such a good question, bro. That's such a good question. Is he binding it up? No. Because John John's gospel is one of the only ones where Yeshua clearly in his earthly ministry talks about how it's going to change and he'll no longer speak in parables. Now I'm speaking to you in parables and riddles, but the time will come when the comforter comes, I'll speak to you clearly and give it to you plainly. Yeah. John, the, uh, John, the son of Zebedee, the apostle lives in that day. He's like, he's writing this very late. He's old. Right. Okay. And, and so he's making it plain. He's doing what was wow. supposed to be said. So, so, but watch this though. Both of his rabbis, because he was a, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. 
two of his disciples were walking with John the Baptist, and they said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And they both stopped following John the Baptist. And Andrew and John the son of Zebedee, that's our author, they start going with Yeshua, and they say to him, Hey, where are you staying? Come and see. And, and this, it starts the story of John. John avoids his own. The reason you don't hear about the calling of John and James, John is trying to, he's trying to be humble. He's not mentioning himself. He's making nothing of himself. He's only making much of the name of Yeshua. And I'm just telling you guys, this is, a, this is kind of a prophecy. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to this, please just hold on to your master Yeshua. Just stay at his feet and keep yeah. following him. This young man was likely a teenager. He was following a 30-something-year-old John the Baptist who was an upstart. And he was still fishing with his father. And then he transferred to Yeshua. And he lived decades after the death of Yeshua, who was 30, 30 at the time he was executed. John, the son of Zebedee, was a young man. And he was a firebrand. He was named with his brother, <laughs> the, the sons of thunder. These two suggested after the Shomronim, the, 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 the Samaritans, wouldn't receive Yeshua at a certain place in Luke. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Let me rephrase that. Hey, Yeshua, do you want us to commit genocide on the city and kill everything? You know, do you want us to wipe out everything? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, what? <laughs> if you can imagine bullheaded people, and it doesn't, it gets worse. They start an enormous argument because they get their mom, with their mom, they approach Yeshua and they say, hey, when you come in your power, you know, like you need like, you know, like the like David had, you know, like you need mighty men, you know, like you need right hand men, you need people at your right and your left. That should be, that should be us. <laughs> put us at your right and your left. You're talking about people who constantly put forward their ideas, put themselves forward. And he's like, dude, will you be baptized with the baptized, baptism I'm baptized with? Young knuckleheads. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we can be. <laughs> okay. Well, you'll you can you will be baptized with the baptism I'm gonna be baptized with. But for the right and left thing, my father decides that. Right. And what he does by saying my father decides that, keep that in mind. Very, very local. Very, let's keep it very local, not mysterious. He's showing them humility. He's the Messiah. He should be able to decide whoever sits wherever the hell he wants. They know he's the Messiah. Right. And he's so humble, he's like, guys, this is how you wield authority. He has already told them how they wield authority. Because when they started to argue like that, what he says to them afterwards is, why are you guys arguing? Why are you talking about who's the greatest among you? The greatest among you is the one like a child. The greatest among you is the slave and the servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be servant, rather serve and give his life as a ransom for many. No, I don't get to decide where people sit. You know, this is... <laughs> yeah. And to see this young man who who is arrogant, wrong-headed, mm-hmm. uh, zealous misdirected to see him become an old humble sage that can say i'm not even going to name myself that's where i right. am the only name i want to speak now is yeshua i don't want to speak my own name i say that as prophecy for all of you hold on that's the kind of man or woman that, that this that my rabbi can make you into he can get rid of your zeal your fire your anger i don't mean fire in a good way he can get rid of your your inferno. He can get rid of your your just your arrogance, you know. He yeah. can, and and it's incredible. So I would say this: here he is, John, our man John is the one who writes for sixteen. Okay, John. right. It's like you're having it. That's beautiful, man. Because you're having somebody who was, I mean, if he's testifying about himself, and it's probably true. Like if he's humble, that he 
was the beloved disciple. That's what we yes, were reading. He's not identifying himself. But it it's like a sweet kind of like, in a way, a love letter for like lack of better words. Like it's sort of like a love letter of like, this is the last thing. This is what I want to have continue about my rabbi when I was with him. Like yeah. during this time, this is the understanding I've gotten. And like, yes. you know, I'm just imagining what he's probably, he's probably crying a lot, like probably really missing Yeshua, though oh he has gosh. a spirit, like yes. missing being with him while he's writing this, like we know the is. testimony again. We know, know he is. We know he is. We know he is. We know he's missing him because he wrote that epistle, First John, and we touched him. We touched the word of life. We touched him. Mm-hmm. We saw him with our eyes. We saw him with our ears and we touched him. Yeah, he misses him. And and not only that, here's a guy who was brought into this closest circle. It's one of Yeshua's first disciples. Mm. <laughs> and he he's just, he's at his feet, he's following him. And you can see like, <laughs> who does whose love does he emphasize? He doesn't say, hey, by the way, at this point, Yeshua loved John, the son of Zebedee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, not ver- that's not what verse 16 says. Verse 16 says, for in this way, God loved the world, the whole world. This one and only son. Okay. Now, here's what I'm going to touch. It, one, of the, it, one of the clearest uh, explanations, too, is if you, I'm not going to because time, because mm-hmm. of time. Mm-hmm. But if you were to read verses 1 through 15, you're going to realize, and actually because we started in 14, if you, if you read verses 1 to 13, whenever Yeshua speaks to Nicodemus, he says nothing that is clear and simple. Everything it says is opaque and tricky. Yeah? He's speaking to a Pharisee who knows the scriptures, a teacher of Israel. He's a rabbi. He's called rabbi. Yeah. Verse 2, rabbi, my teacher, my great one. So he's like, okay, you're meeting me at night. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Red flag one. You're using the title rabbi, which, by the way, the title rabbi given to Yeshua kind of doesn't mean shit. It does mean a lot for us, but I mean, look, dude, that's what Judah said when he kissed him and betrayed him. It's just right. words, you know? Right. And so here we have this guy who's a teacher of Israel. He says, oh, you're the rabbi. You know, so you say that to them when you meet with them in a, you know, right. in a few weeks. Right. Um, rabbi. <laughs> uh, does yeah. our Torah condemn a man? I don't really know yeah. him well, but... <laughs> yeah. uh, no, he, and he says, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. So he doesn't ever say... At this point, if Yeshua were a, just a human, just a flashback, this would be the point. Be like, okay, finally, somebody who's like a teacher of teachers, you know, a sage. Let me, let me tell him what I'm really up to and give it to him clear. And yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> Yeshua like, mm, I'll just keep, I'm going to keep speaking obliquely <laughs> and I'm going to embarrass you. I'm going to say that, you know, you've got to become a baby Yeah. to understand what I'm up to. You've got to be born again. You've got to be a baby. <laughs> it's like, right. what the hell is going on? Right. Uh, from Nicodemus's perspective, it's wild. It's a bizarre thing. And he speaks about being born of water. Born of spirit or wind, okay? Because you can't say the word spirit so simply, you know, little Westerner, because he talks about the wind blowing where it wishes. And in Panuma in Greek, Ruach in Hebrew, it's just wind. The wind goes where it wishes. You've got to be born of wind and water. It's like, what the hell, Yeshua, you're starting to, you kind of sound like a Native American shaman who's like, you know, licked a toad. I don't know. What do you mean? Um, and so the... So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It doesn't help him. He just lets him hang. I imagine after verse 8, Nicodemus thought maybe he would make it clear for him. He doesn't. 
How can this be? And his answer is just more stuff. He actually, his first answer is embarrassing. Are you the teacher of Israel? You don't understand these things? You're a teacher of Israel. Did you think I was giving you esoteric mysteries because you had a private conversation? But with the I guy think he's think? still trying to love on him. He is. That. He's trying to be like, do you see how this teacher thing just, you, you got to get it. Like mm -hmm. he's loving on him to be like, this. A, that's a bad position for you to be in, man, to be a teacher and still not know yeah. what I'm talking about. And he asked it as a question. Aren't you the teacher? Yeah. They call me a rabbi and you say, I'm the teacher. But aren't you the teacher in Israel? Right. Helping him see, like, what's your judgment? And then... Let's set ourselves there for a second. Think of the pain of that statement. Yeah. Aren't you the teacher? Imagine the two men. Yeshua's a man. Imagine, and Nicodemus is likely much older. Mm -hmm. Here's this older sage who's in Sanhedrin. This older judge and sage by Israel speaking to him. And he yeah. says, aren't you the teacher? Can you imagine him thinking about how embarrassing would that be for Nicodemus? When Nicodemus walks into a synagogue, how's he looked at and treated? Right. We know that the Parashim, uh, as, in, as general, had theology that supported wealth and money and the aggregation of such as this is a divine, this is a manifestation in the scene realm of divine favor. We know they loved, they, they tended to like wide phylacteries. They were very, they were visibly recognizable by the way shaul paul is still a pharisee and it's one the question you might ask is how does he mysteriously get asked to speak in every synagogue he's a pharisee he's probably still just dressed like one so the, right. so they have wide phylacteries they are seen they like the title rabbi right they want to be called rabbi they like honor in the marketplace they like trumpets to be blown when they give alms and chesed and it's like aren't you the teacher right how is he treated when he walks into a place? How is he looked at? What He's is reviled. He? Yeah. And so he says this question, aren't you the teacher in Israel? And, and, and then he says to him, amen, amen, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify by what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. Now, he's speaking about you, the leaders in Jerusalem, the leaders of Jerusalem who are largely made up of a coalition in Sanhedrin, he's probably addressing Sanhedrin, which are the leaders of Israel, the ultimate leaders. They are. Sanhedrin actually is an organ of government that's recognized by Rome, led by the high priest. But it's largely made up of a consensus and coalition of the, I think they're called Sadokim, which is from Sadok, the Sadducees, and the Parashim, the Pharisees. And he, you don't accept our testimony. Am I the teacher? I thought, I thought you called me a rabbi and teacher. You don't even accept my testimony. We're just telling him what you've seen and heard. And he says, I'm talking about what I've seen and heard. Now, this is also a weird reference to who the hell is sitting with me in Nicodemus's shoes. Right. And okay. Who is this 30-year-old? This gets mentioned a lot. Yeshua's youth. In John. John mentions it. John was a young man when he was recalling these things. He was like a teenager or in his 20s. Yeshua was still young. 30, between 30 and 33. Young man. Especially in their culture. Right. You don't know shit yet. You can only, a 30-year-old priest is a, is a beginner and a novice. You can even start being a priest till you're 30, okay? They, they would take the same role for smichut, for authority. You can't be a rabbi, you know? You, you, if you're a rabbi at 30, you've, you've already been skilled, but you can only quote other rabbis. You don't get to have your own yoke, your own innovation, your own interpretation of Torah. Yeah, just because. Yeah. Just because. Yeah, you got to wait. You got to put your reps in, get under your belt. And, whatever. and here's this young Jew, and he says, I'm talking about what I've seen and heard. You don't accept our testimony. He's partly referencing the works and the miracles, but he's talking about something else too. 
And he says, you thought I was talking to you about heavenly things? I was talking about earthly things. I haven't even begun to tell you about heavenly things. You thought I was giving you a mystical back and forth? I've not even touched that. This is a, it's a bizarre, bizarre thing. And 13 tells you the distinction why he's telling him earthly things. Because I couldn't tell you. if I'm tell, All I'm telling you is testimony. All I'm giving you is testimony, what right. I've seen and heard. I'm at step one. Yeah. And he's like, I'm only telling you what I've seen and heard because I can't be telling you about heavenly things, right? Because mm-hmm. the only one who could give testimony from heaven is the one who's ascended into heaven. Right? And then no one's ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. Ben Adam. This weird phrase, a son of man, a human. What the hell is this guy talking about? It's bizarre. And he, Nick, he's not trying to, I don't think... Yeshua's aim when he says the son of man isn't like it would be that hopefully Nicodemus would be like it's you you're the son of man but Yeshua's more so being like the son of man you know? yeah he uses a title and it's a it's clever because it means human Ben Adam is a word for it's how you say human in Hebrew and right. in Aramaic it would be recognized as the word for human it just would be like us being like human being they wouldn't know that he's talking about they have, Messiah. We know they don't. This is what's so cool about John, the son of Zebedee. He, he's consistent. He is like creating a tapestry work in his gospel. He has them confronting him. The parashim specifically saying, what the hell is this son of man title you keep using? They don't, he, they don't, he doesn't, he won't tell them. Actually, he finally gives up the ghost and tells them. He still speaks in parables, but he only tells Caiaphas, the high priest, because the high priest is a... a Jerusalem, right? Yeah, a Jerusalem by the living God. He invokes the name as the high priest and... and Mashiach keeps the Torah. And he says, he just quotes a combination of Daniel 7, 13 and Psalm 110, verse 5 and 1. Like, this is the son of man. This is what I meant. Yeah, son of man was the figure who rode on the clouds, the cloud rider, who is a young warrior, who is Yahweh, the warrior, receiving glory. And the one who's at the right hand of Yahu is Yah, who comes to fill the valley with corpses. (laughs) It's like, we don't need any more testimony. Um, right. The, right. Uh, and so we have, we have this idea, the son of man, but what about, he says something weird, the son of man must be lifted up. Now see, this is like exalted. He, he touches the son of man. Now that we've touched that word, son of man, we go into our verse 14. And this is the problem for you guys who love 316, bumper sticker 316, 316 <laughs> lovers. It's just this, these pesky verses before, you know, um, this, the, the phrase, in uh, verse 14 is problematic for people who want John 3.16 to just be simple, uh, a simple uh, uh, reading where Yeshua is clear. He's not speaking John 3.16 to just be John 3.16. That's right. And uh, and the problem with that is the Greek, which John was composed in, kekathos uh, moesis, just as, and kathos, just as in the same way, according to, kata, according to, and just in the same way, as Moses, like, oh man, shit. I don't just get to make God's love mean whatever I want. It's now tied to the semantic domain of this weird shit he's saying about Moshe, Moses. Yeah, dude, it is. You, you're not gonna, you can't get around that. Okay, Kathos Moesis, um, just as the, the, just as Moshe lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, thus it is necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up necessary that the son of man be lifted up okay we have already touched what the son of man figure alludes to daniel 7 13 you'll see the one who looks like the son of man riding on the clouds before the ancient of days and the the ancient of days is clearly yahweh the son of man is given worship and honor and glory 
and he's the cloud rider, which only Yahweh is. The only time a human figure, a human is said to ride the clouds is this verse. Every other time it's Yahweh, the local Yahweh. And uh, you can see this in the Talmud. You can see this in certain uh, midrashes that the a, a general consensus among the rabbis, even centuries later, was that this figure in Daniel 7.13 is just Yahweh, mm -hmm. depicted as a man of war like Exodus 15. Right. He has two of his depictions there. Um, and this was a common problem. It, it, it passed the second temple as a problem, a theological conundrum for the Jews. It's called the two powers in heaven problem. This was a, it's written about in the, at the Talmud. There are all kinds of differing opinions. Are there two powers in heaven? Um, this is, and it, it, the gospel comes at the time where this is like ripe for conversation and know okay, that, yeah. that, that this is what Nicodemus is. I mean, Nicodemus is an old Pharisee who's in Sanhedrin and he would have been a, a, aware of a lot of this lore. And I mean, the Parashim are the ones that will historically evolve into the, uh, into rabbinic Judaism, you know, in the days right. of Yeshua, there's no Judaism, there's Judaisms. But mm -hmm. after the destruction of the temple, uh, the Pharisees win. The Parashim essentially take over, you know, they, they, and, and to say you're part of Judaism after about the 4th to 7th century AD up until the 1730s is to say you're in the vein of rabbinical Judaism. Mm -hmm. and whether you're Sephardic Jew or Ashkenazic Jew, you're all in that, you're there, they dominate. So they have these ideas. And so we have this picture of Moshe lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. So it is necessary, in the same way it is necessary for the Son of Man. Okay, must, dei in Greek, must. He must be lifted up. Utos, so in the same way, dei, must, so he must. This is why the LEB translated it, thus it is necessary. Which means this, the giving up of the Son in our famous verse 16 is lexically, semantically, scripturally and parabolically tied and tethered and bound to this picture of Moshe lifting up the serpent. Right. Which requires that <laughs> you go and, I mean, it, it necessitates. No, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> that's old covenant, man. That's, that's old Testament. It's old. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't fit. He washed it. Uh, <laughs> but it, yeah, it's like, Therefore, it kind of requires that you go back and be like, well, what was the whole snake in lift, lifting you a snake up in the wilderness? You gotta go back. Yeah. That's exactly right. You have to go back. So we'd have to go back to the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, and we'd have to find this. I'll read verse 15 just to give us, give us some context because it's a continued sentence. Hina, hina pas, in order that all who, pistevon, all those who are believing or deeming faithful, Okay, in him, okay, in him, or faithful in him, or deeming him faithful, okay, um, and uh, or 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 giving him the uh, that placing their trust in him as a faithful one. Right. It's not like Santa Claus. Like I believe in the Easter Bunny. Or yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Claus. I'm trying to get around this problem of uh, which I want to talk about in another sure, episode. Of sure, sure, sure. Belief is, but that's exactly right. What does it, it mean? They're not talking about those who propositionally acquiesce that he died. And no, that's not what they're talking about. They they mean uh, they mean someone who's like, yeah, I judge him. Those who judge the Son of Man who was lifted up as a faithful one and they then place their trust in him okay? right okay uh those ones will have life aeonion which gets translated eternal which is really nice if you're you know a, a post-medieval post-catholic kind of westerner 
post-Christendom Westerner, eternal, eternality. And really, it's Hellenism. It's a Hellenistic idea. No, the idea is age-enduring. And remember, this is connected to snakes that bit people. We're going to go into that story. We need to. Um, and it, hopefully we can tie together these thematic points. I don't know. How, what, how much time? Where We're we? at uh, 55 minutes. Uh, you tell yeah, me, so, brother. Well, no. I mean, I think it'd be good to at least, like, it's, uh, I don't want to say summarize, but, like, how can we broad stroke what happens with um, the Moshe lifting up the snake in the wilderness? What was that and how is, I mean, it's so deep. So I, I guess like just to say why, why is Yeshua saying that it's necessary in the same way? Yeah. Um, why it must happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think this is, yeah, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. really good. <laughs> this is really good like for what we've gotten at least setting up like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Understanding Yeshua moving parabolically and how he speaks and not give I mean not giving it away. He's just honoring people's judgment of how they want to be spoken to. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But I guess if it's like if he's saying this must happen in the same way. Um, yeah. What must happen? Why in the same way? Uh, yeah. Just I guess whatever you whatever you believe would be good to explore. In, okay. In that. We're in the the event happens in Numbers twenty one. Okay. On just so you know, on either end two prophets who were in the Levitical line or the priestly line died. Aaron, Aaron died before Miriam died, who is in, obviously in the tribe of Levi, and she's a prophetess. Numbers actually um, speaks about her as a prophetess, and Numbers 12 speaks about how, because of coveting Moshe, her older brother's position, she is struck with leprosy. Okay, and that's not what kills her. She is restored after seven days. Right. Uh, but so two figures are die. Israel is losing representatives through death, and then uh, they uh, uh, he gave they they win the, uh, the Canaanite king. So in the beginning of twenty one, a Canaanite king of Arad, Yahweh gives over um, their entire city right to them, and they win, and they leave from a great victory. And okay, um, they've destroyed these cities. And they, they go through the land of Edom, um, but the people become, uh, the LEB translates it impatient along the way. Israel becomes impatient along the way. Um, and uh, you could say, they, it, it's the soul of the people uh, grew vexed, grieved, short, katsar, okay, grew short, uh, or impatient the idea is uh yeah that, that that's good enough okay it's related to the idea of harvest it's almost like we just wanted to be here already impatient you know and uh, this their soul becomes impatience on along the way in the journey okay and they begin to speak against god and they begin to speak against moshe and what did they say they say, Lama, why have you led us up out of Egypt? Well, you know, you can imagine if Moses, I don't think Moses, Moses is passive or, or, uh, or, or mealy-mouthed, but you can imagine, like, oh, what about slavery? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Because there is no bread. There's no food, lechem. They literally say there's no bread. They get manna every day. The word for food is lechem. Right. They say there is no bread. The en mayim. There's no bread. There's no water. 
ונפשנו, and our souls, קצה, detest. They, we detest בלחם, הקלוקל, this wretched bread. <laughs> they speak against the, the manna. And this is a grumble. It is the detest, a detesting, the grumble and complain. Grumbling and complaining is depicted as words that are poisonous, that spread. And it does. We see this happen with Israel a lot. Their testimony gets shifted and changed because complaint and grumbling spreads among the people. Okay? And this is like, this is not the first time this has happened. And so this is Yahweh's response. Okay? You can already see corollaries in John, by the way, with <laughs> this idea of this bread that came down from heaven. We don't want it. We detest it. Right. It's yeah, terrible. Yeah. Um, and verse 6. And Yah sent among the people poisonous snakes. Now I'm going to read to you this because it's kind of weird. Vayishlach, and he sent Yah Ba'am in the people et hanechashim serpents, haseraphim, seraphs. That's where the word comes from. He sends them nechashim, serpents that are poisonous. One of the preferred titles for serpents is a seraph because serafmi is a verb that means to burn. And the poison the, the the kind of physiological feeling of being uh, of being bit by one of these things, the poison burns you, right? Burns your skin. It's hot. You get flush. And so there's a play on words because nachash means divination. It's trying to pervert the will of God and, and reach into it and reach into heaven and enforce your will. Uh, it means serpent and it also means bronze or shining one. Okay, bronze by implication mm. of bronze. Uh <clears throat> And then they were bitten, and they were bitten, the people, and many died. The people, Many of the people in Israel died after being bitten. Essentially, by the way, what he's doing is he's like, okay, you guys want to spit poison with your words? Okay, I'll just, I'll sh- I'm going to show you what you are. And I'm going to surround you with the way that you, you want to arrange yourself this way as my people? You want to be serpents? Yeah. You want to go back to Egypt? The guy who had the serpent on his crown? Who enslaved you? Okay. You like it? I'll send you serpents. They spit poison too. And they're biting one another just like you're biting one another. You know? Um, and this is a, a really powerful judgment. This this kind of similitude, this, this uh, parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y, this joining, it matches what, what's going to happen, what Moshe has to do. And it matters for us because of how atonement has to be made. Okay, where did they go? Who were they speaking against, by the way? They spoke against three things. What did they speak against? Spoke against Moses. Moses? God. God. And uh, the food. The food. Yeah. The bread. Moses, God, and the bread. They spoke against all three. Now, the people have to come to Moshe and they say, Chatanu, we sinned. We sinned. Ki dibarnu v'yah, because we spoke in, against Yah, uvecha, and against you. We spoke against Yah and against you. We've sinned. Alrighty, this is starting to be weird. Because if the Son of Man's lifted up like the serpent, we have, right. we have a Moshe figure and Yah being spoken against by the people. Okay, betrayal's already there. The work of the serpent's already there with this complaint, with these grumbling. Um, 
And Hitpalel, pray for us, intercede for us. Pray and intercede. This word is important in Isaiah as well. Yeah. Pray and intercede for us to God, to Yahweh. And he will turn away. The same word that he said to Isaiah, turn away your sin. He may turn away from us. Then the serpent, and, and Moses intercedes for the people. Now this intercession is not just words. It's not just words. He comes interceding and praying interceding for the people, crying out on behalf of them for their sin. And he does it with a sacrifice. Know this. One of the words for sacrifice is korban. One word is um, is, uh, zavach, which is just a slaughtered thing, which is a living sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. But another word is korban. It just means a near thing. You can sacrifice gold. You can sacrifice flour. You bring it near and it becomes incorporated in the temple complex. Moshe is ordered to construct a fiery serpent, which is a replica of these serpents, which ultimately was already a replica of Israel and their bad behavior. So he makes a replica of the people and the serpents that are poisonous. And he does it with bronze. It is a sacrifice, a korban, a near thing that is constructed to be brought into sacred space as a memorial and a reminding, and it accomplishes atonement. Hmm. This a memorial and a reminding. Yeah, it, it, because it will be set up. It's going to be set up in sacred space. It's going to be set up in sacred space. Um, and they how do they do it? They put it on a pole. Al-Nes. On a pole. A thing that is nasa, A thing that is lifted up. On a pole. What's funny is this word nes takes on an extra meaning in Aramaic, which is Yeshua's language. A thing lifted up or exalted, the word nes in Aramaic means miracle. A miracle. Uh, and they li- a sign. They lift it up. And it was the case, and it came to be the fact that whatever whoever was bitten, if he stared at it, he was uh, if he stared at it, he was healed. Um, and what's interesting is if you go to verse nine, okay, verse nine is interesting because you may think, oh, if he just looks at the snake, he's good to go. That's not how it works. Um, so Moshe makes this snake of bronze. Nechash uh, nechashet, and he mounts it. Okay, v'yismehu, he he mounts it on he mounts it on this pole. Okay, and it came to be the case that whenever anyone who was bitten by the snake, that man, when he gazed at the serpent that Moses constructed and was lifted up, he would live. Now this word gaze is different from look. Ve'hibit, ve'hibit. Okay, ve'hibit. Uh, it means to stare at and gaze at. What you can imagine, which makes the best sense of the Hebrew, is they couldn't look away. If they looked away, it would stop. You would have to temporally stare at it until you were healed. Huh. This is, it becomes really powerful because this is what John's going to emphasize in his gospel over and over again. He ends his gospel with saying, those who go on believing, those who go on deeming it faithful, because I guarantee you, there were hard-hearted men and Israelites in there who said to their wives, Ishti, my wife, go out and go get some herbs. We're going to put it on these wounds. I'm not looking at that damn thing that he put up. Some of these people speaking against Moshe wouldn't humble themselves to be damn sure because people continued to die. Mm-hmm. You can imagine these guys being like, no, I'm not going to look at it. Right. I'm not that thing. It's an asham. An asham is basically an offering for... Sin that mem- that basically takes the hidden thing 
that's inside and externalizes it right on a like, grand display this is you this is you right. you're the serpent no i'm not going to stare at that damn thing until i'm healed i'll ride it out i'll do this i'll do or i'll start staring and be like mm, screw this okay it's a process that healing right and so too the son of man will heal people but you have to stare at him and what's interesting is this word lifted up it is a reference simultaneously to his death and to his exaltation, the one who will ascend to heaven, which mm -hmm. is what he referenced, mm -hmm. and also the one who will be lifted up on Golgotha, on this mount, who will look at him. Right. And you you will be healed by staring at him. This is incredible because the asham is the sacrifice required to take someone from the state of leprosy and, and bring them into the camp to cleanse them of leprosy, to bring them back into right. the camp. But if, if we are today in let's wait and say 2022, we don't yeah. have Yeshua of Nazareth hanging on a tree. Sure. Currently in the scene sure. realm. But yeah. how do I, uh, uh how do uh, I, uh. and just like, I guess going into the, ne the necessity of staring at it, what yeah. am I looking at? Bingo. The servant song. Hine, behold, behold, uh, uh, I'll actually go to, it's, it's the servant song, Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. 52, 13 talks about his exalted state, and so does the last verse of 53, 12. The, hear what I'm saying? The word for pole, there's so much double duty here. Mm -hmm. The word for pole, a thing lifted up, okay, nace, a thing lifted up, comes from the verb nasa, which means to lift up, lift off, or forgive. Okay. It also in Aramaic means a miracle. The miracle of the resurrection is referenced. Okay. In Isaiah 52, uh, 13. And it's referenced in 53, 10 and 53, 12. Hmm. He is going to be. Um, so how do I stare at him? I stare at him. First off, I, I, I take the testimony of what others saw and heard, the, the gospel, his death. I stare at that. I deal with that. I hear it. I hear the message. I face it. Yes. When I am convicted by it and I deem it faithful, who deemed him faithful? Who's deemed our message faithful? I then stare where? I don't look at the ground. I don't go to the tomb to look at Yeshua. I go to where he miraculously nays, where he's been lifted up. I cry out in his name where he is exalted. I prophetically gaze at him and stare at him. I address him as in the Shemaim, the one who's ascended. Okay, I keep gazing at him. The story that led me to gaze in the heavens is how the hell did this Jew, this supposed carpenter's son even get up there? Yeah. <laughs> I have to be encountered with the prophetic word, the message. I have to be encountered with the message of where the hell did he go and how did he get there? I have to retrace his steps. Wait, he was just this nobody, unattractive, like a, like, a, like a little sapling that, and a root out of dry ground. And he didn't have a parents that we should want him. That guy? And then he did what? He did these miracles? Oh man, he pissed off the wrong people. And, they, and wait, you're saying he died because of my grumbling? Right. Because of like, my evil? I did what? Yeah. I am why he was lifted up? The leprosy, the covetousness, the brokenness, the evil that's in me? You mean, you mean the man that was naked in my image, made in my image in every way, a replica of me, nailed to a tree and lifted up, just like Adam who was made, Adam who was made naked and died because of the event of a tree, wretched, called accursed. Okay, um, you want to call this? <laughs> I mean, it's so deep. 
there's this way that's like, oh my gosh, like, and then I say, I have to lift my eyes, like Isaiah says, the people when they're embarrassed and they're ashamed because of their conduct, they will speak as though their voice will be like spirits that whisper out of the dust because they're so ashamed. But Yah will have to say to them, daughter Zion, no, get up out of the dust. Shake it off. <laughs> look at where, look up, look where I am. Set your eyes on me. I'm going to exalt you. This kind, you know. And so there's this picture that we get to, uh, we've, we've made our way through 16 and now we can read our powerful verse, which really, this is what God is saying. It's so incredible. He is saying, for God so loved the world. Read First John, the cosmos. This is not the elect people who will believe in him from all the tribes and tongues. No, the world is that which is evil. It boasts about what it sees and material possessions of what it has. It's perverted and it's a rebel and it hates God and it loves its slavery and it curses God and it speaks despisingly of him and against anyone who stands up for him. That thing, he loved that thing so much that he gave us one and only his precious son to die for that thing. That it wouldn't perish. Even if they wouldn't look, because guess what, guys? People didn't look even after the serpent was put up. He still offered his own son to be put up on a pole so that anybody who would gaze and stare at him might be saved and go on living because he wants them. That offer is so potent and heavy and still valid today, dude. It's like, this is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's not some silly fairy tale about a big grandpa in heaven slapping his knee in a universalist scheme. I just love everybody. <laughs> it, it is dark and horrifying and humbling and humiliating. And the first one to be humiliating humiliated was the servant he humiliated himself guys this is isaiah this is the servant's own this is what he did you know and um and why so that we wouldn't perish but have eternal life and what's incredible is this 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 by gazing at, he's already in a sham and a sham is an offering that's a double a doppelganger a twin it basically takes the malady and it duplicates it in a visual form he is our malady you think you're you think you're wealthy, you think you're well, you think you've got it together and you know what's right. You think you, know? you look good. Yeah, and you, you should think you, you're enough. You think you're you have sight. Oh, we know we need to go back to, to 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 Egypt. We know how to navigate this thing. We know where we need to be. We know what we look like, we know who we are. Actually you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. You don't even see it. The serpent has made you naked. And you are humiliated. I'm gonna reveal it to you by humiliating myself. So you can see this. And when you look at this, when you gaze at this, guess what? If you first look and you say, I want to follow him. I surrender to that one who did it for me. I'm willing. I see myself like this already. Yeah. Guess what, guys? The good news, the gospel, praise God. You don't just end up with his death because the story doesn't stop there. No, 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 no. If you associate yourself with the Asham, you end up where it ends up. Yeah. And he ended Amen. up at the right hand of the Father. He ended up glorified, exalted. That's your destiny if you keep staring. Yes. If you keep gazing. That You don't just get to share. He exposed where you were. He came down and met you where you were. And, and as an Asham, he revealed, that's me. That's where I am. He says, good. I transferred my place to go be with you where you are. We're going to transfer place. And you get to be where I end up. Yeah. 
you know, and this, well, too, like it's, it's the Christian thing to be like, he died up on the, that cross for my sin. Yeah. And I don't know if, at least when I hear that, it seems like the sin that he wore on that cross over there, that was back then. And I'm clean now because Mm -hmm. like he did it, but I don't have to continually look at that. Mm -hmm. Like, I really believe it isn't every day. Yes. Nearly every moment with like keeping yeah. staring in the moment to say, yeah. this is actually who I truly am. Yes. And I require his life within me Amen. to heal me. Not my sin was paid and it's, and it's done and it's a separate thing that's like on the cross now. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah you yeah. know, it's like, it's continual. Yes. It's not just like a, uh, uh, when I say sin, it's like that's a, the difficulty of fucking of language. Just like yeah. the sin, like what the hell do you even mean? You're talking. I'm talking about the true thing that's in you, the yes. true thing that's in me. Yeah, it's still at work you in know, you. Still at work. Uh, it, yes. It, okay, so let's let's touch these. That's such a good question. I'm so glad you're doing this podcast because you think of things and say things that I wouldn't think to say or do, brother. And uh, and that's so helpful because what you're doing is you're saying, well, there's this punctiliar one and done concern. For the gospel, mm-hmm. it's, it's accomplished, it's finished, it's done, yeah, you know, yeah. type of deal. And then there's this other like, well, no, it's ongoing. Those who endure till the end will be saved and whatever. And which is it? Which is it? Well, let's think of it this way based on what I'm saying. Start with Moshe. Once he erects and sets up the serpent, it's done. It's done. The way for healing, the mode of healing, it's established. It can't be moved. Are you going to stare at it till you're healed? This is, and it's like the Messiah, dude, he's exalted, my dude. The cornerstone has been set in place. Praise God. You're not going to move him. He's at the right hand of the father, the Messiah that we all misjudged. And we said, God did this to him. God struck him. God killed him. No, in fact, he was carrying our iniquities and carting them away like a servant. He was serving us. We, like, we screwed it up. But God saw that and God judgment of his humiliated one. No, I'm going to heal him. You all misjudged him. He's going to see the light of life. He'll see his seed multiplied. He'll have many sons and daughters that he give, gives born, makes them born again, gives new birth to. Yeah. And, and he'll see the light of life and he'll be at my right hand and I'll divide the spoils with him. Okay. Um, that's done. Praise. That's done. It, that is done. Okay. But am I? going to stare at him am i going to keep looking at him day in day out because the uh the the interesting thing is this is if we go to our final verse the question of salvation is what you're asking about that's what people mean as salvation okay um and salvation has at least two parts one is the vehicle of salvation being set in place and functioning and going and working. And the other is the people who use that vehicle or that way provided. And that's our final verse, verse 17. For God did not send the, his son into the world that he loved, this wicked world, in order that he should judge the world. And in fact, what we've just said is very simply, he let the world judge him. Because his judgment of the world was already done. I love them. Without their permission, Mike, the gospel is a judgment. This is how I see the image of God. This is how I see you humans, my beloved child, with whom I am well pleased, my chosen one. That's my judgment. And he sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, 
Because he already judged it by sending him in the sense of like, my judgment is I love you. For God so loved the world, this wicked world. He loved it. But in order to save the world, in order that those who, in order that the world should be saved through him, and wants to save them. And so what we're doing here is, the distinction is, is the way to salvation is set, my dude. It is done. And the first human runner on it is himself, the way. Right. And he got it. He's right. And so there's this idea of like, okay, the early church knew this because the early church was Jews. They understood the fulfillment of all these texts that we're talking about. And here's what they under what they knew when they read Isaiah, when they looked at the life of the Messiah, when they heard the phrase "Follow me," when they said, when they heard him say, "Pick up your cross," when they read Isaiah 53, they didn't otherize the Messiah. They thought he had created and paved and carved a way and a path for them. They didn't think, oh, it's the way of the Messiah. Now we're saved because we believe this Jew had a way that only he ran. And this this Messiah created a course that only he would run and he's so special and he's so great. And now we're saved because we believe he's special, right? No. You're saved if you take the same course that the Messiah pioneered. Guys, that's how the New Testament understands Isaiah 53. Go to Peter. He quotes Isaiah 53 extensively and says, do the same thing. Consider your suffering and it, you just, just copy Yeshua and follow him. Mm-hmm. Read Luke. Luke quotes, in the gospel, Luke will quote Isaiah 53 and various portions of Isaiah and the sacrifice of the Messiah. And Luke also writes Acts. And when he depicts the death of Stephen, the first martyr in Jerusalem, or the first martyr whose testimony is d- depicted in Jerusalem, he just he lines up the death of Stephen to the death of Messiah almost word for word. Because Stephen's eyes are set and fixed on the Messiah. He sees him in the clouds of glory and he says, I see him. And they kill him. He finished the course. He followed the same path. This is Hebrews 12. Set your eyes, fix your eyes on the Messiah. The author and finisher of our faithfulness. He ran this course. Run the same course as the Messiah. As you're going to stay on course, hunt down peace and holiness without which you won't be able to fix your eyes on Yeshua. And if you don't have your eyes fixed on Yeshua, you won't be able to finish the race. Mm -hmm. The cool thing is, is the course is set. Satan can't thwart it. The path is set. He can't undo the reality of the, the path being set and the one who won the race being there exalted. Can't do anything about that. But he sure as hell will try to stop you. From staring at it for healing. Yeah. Paul says this. He says, when you're a new spirit, man, when you're born again, it is like your conscience is a womb. And the seed of the Messiah, Isaiah 53, his seed will see the light of life, is planted in you. Just like 1 John says. Okay. And this new baby is in the womb of your conscience. That's your spirit, man. That's birthed by, in the likeness of the, the Son of God, the Messiah. And that spirit, man, is to like an infant, is to grow and mature into the fullness of the maturity of the Son of God. This side of the resurrection, which, by the way, is our healing. Our healing is the resurrection. That's why we can't say we're healed yet. The Messiah is healed fully of all the the, the, the horrific treatment and everything we did because of the resurrection. The days will come, though, where the Messiah will call out to all those whose spirit, that seed is put in, the, the word of life that's planted in them. Okay, And they will be called to him. Meanwhile, this side of the resurrection, prior to resurrection, we end up having two dual identities where the, the, that, 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 that new creation, that new man, okay, is the one who is supposed to be the identity and he is trying to run that race that is plot, that is plotted by the Messiah. But the old man is still there 
He's still vying. He's still saying, no, 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 let's do it this way, or let's run that course, or let's stop, whatever. And the two are at odds, so I do not do what I want to do. Yeah, we got to keep staring. It's just like a leper, you know, imagine his uh, hands. Oh, he's starting to gain life in his hands, but he's still got sores. He still stinks. There's still right. death in him. Right. Still, like Paul says in Romans, there's still death in his members, which is a leprosy metaphor. This death is at work in my members. But now with my mind, because the spirit's been put in my conscience, my mind doesn't have to be set on the flesh and death. It can be set on life. The parts that are broken are, are able to be rearranged by merit of the spirit and the conscience. And I can now move and run and set my eyes on the Messiah. In fact, how do you set your eyes on someone who's in the heavenly realm? What do we call peering into the heavenly realm? Prophecy. That's why the Messiah said... I'm going to give the comfort and the, proph the prophecy, or I'm going to give the spirit of prophecy. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, the means by which you can set your eyes on the exalted Messiah and move forward. Because in this world, they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Okay. Um, and that, that serpent is golden, or bronze, sorry. It's of a, a precious metal, and it's put up in the courtyard. It's probably why it's bronze. It's put up in the courtyard so for everyone, so people can see it. That's why they put it on a pole, because they can't see above the guarded Right. Walls, you know. And then everybody can gaze and look at it. They stare up and they look at this thing floating. That's another thing to remember. The serpent is floating. It's in the heavens. It's exalted. And they're like, remember Isaiah, these seraphim, these, these, these heavenly beings, you know, they're around Yah enthroned. It's like we look to that. We can't peer at that without prophecy. How did Yeshayah see it? The spirit of prophecy. How did he see it? Prophecy. God revealed it to him. We need the Holy Spirit to be able to peer at this. And that's how we keep on keeping on. That's yeah. how we end up being saved. We will be saved when we are resurrected and healed and with him where he is. You will be with me where I go. You know, I know this has been long, but uh, this is the gospel. This, you know, this, yes. this, this, so. Yes. I mean, it's so, it's so deep. It's so layered. Um, I'm really grateful, man. Cause I think we, I mean, from where it began to, to this, it just, it, it, I think you covered like so many different bases and yeah, I'm just thankful for it because it's more than what I was, it was beyond what I was expecting to go for with this. So, and also I want to say, because this I mean, is, anything else to anybody that might be listening to this too, at the end that you want to, but what, what do you want to say? I want to talk about you for mm -hmm. a second because we don't have the, you know, at some point, God willing, we'll be able to film some of this, you know, yeah. and people don't have the intimate access of sight like I do here and it's like there are multiple points where I'm you know like I'm proclaiming this word and clay like you're you're moved you're like on the two or three times you're on the verge of crying and mm. weeping um, and this is like this is meaningful for us as brothers we're like kind of saying to each other as we're having these conversations again this this podcast is about conversation mm. guys I'm gonna break the fourth wall Deadpool style like this is my yeah. brother I want him to keep keeping on it's like two brothers who are sent out together and it's like you get weak, and sometimes you're like, dude, just go on without me. I can't do this shit anymore. I feel weak. My marriage isn't working. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do, you know, I'm weak. I'm hard-hearted. I'm arrogant. I'm domineering. Whatever. And it's like we say to each other, no, man, keep staring. Keep going, you know? Like, this is a conversation. As brothers, we really had this conversation. Like, we're touching hearts here. It's not, and I would encourage you, like, when you get off of this, like, don't just have your private experience. Go to whatever brother or sister is in your life and tell them to keep keeping on yes remind them to set their eyes on the one above yes you know? keep staring amen thank you bro